Hello and welcome to Too Rash, Too Unadvised, the occasionally thoughtful read-through of Too Like the Lightning, give or take the sequels. My name is Liam Nolan. Mine is Warren Kariuki. And today we're discussing chapters 12 and 13. If you want to ask us any questions or be on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at tworash2unadvised at gmail.com. That is two as in the number two, and I may check that email, so no spoilers, please. Without out of the way, and many thanks to our Lord and Savior Wes, who I will of course kill us, uh, who I of course kill us as the eternal tyrant. Let's get on with the show. Okay, so before we start with the show this week, I have very good news for anyone who's sick of listening to us talk. I'd like to introduce our very first guest. Hi, I'm Johnny. You may know me from such podcasts as a brief appearance on the Bayesian Conspiracy podcast in which I said, Hi, I'm Johnny. You may know me from such podcasts <laughs> as the Uncultured Swine podcast in which I review the Ian M. Banks culture books. Welcome. Uh... Glad to have you yes, on. we're glad to have you on the show. Yeah. So you read up until our current chapter for this week. Uh, let's, before we get into the chapters, just talk about what you think about the book so far, so we can get everyone up to speed. Okay, certainly. Um, I like it. It's a good book. Uh, I took a bunch of notes that are probably entirely unnecessary, because we're not going to have time to talk about all the stuff that I had to think about it. But, you know, uh, it seems to be doing a lot of stuff thematically and indicating a lot of stuff a lot better than certain other stories that try to have a mystery in that there are a lot of clear mysteries that we have questions to ask about and things to suggest answers about. Uh, we probably have time to go right. into this. I'm totally willing to have all of our, our interview podcasts well, be longer. Yes. Sure. Also... Apparently, people like these as a format to be really long episodes. I don't... This might be my fault. I thought the idea was to be short and succinct. But I guess the people who first did the read-through podcast system had, like, three-hour episodes. Is that true? So, the first, like, the the originator, the uh, point from right, which our we all progenitor. Yeah, the uh, not your progenitor, because your progenitor is We Want More, which is a, 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 about the Harry Potter and the Messes of Rationality story. However, the originator of that was We Want Worm, and they had really long episodes where they did, like, incredibly deep dives into the subject. Then uh, We Want More was, like, you know, an hour, a little more than an hour usually, um, you have, I think, based on what I have seen, gone way less than an hour. So you are deviating from the format, which may well be fine, but is a deviation to be noted. I, okay, so I don't, the people who want the pot, I, I totally believe that, that, that certain people want longer podcasts. I don't believe most people want longer podcasts. Well, that's unfortunate, because my episodes tend to go to <laughs> two hours. Um, Do we have any way to find out? I, like, we, I, we don't have many listeners. I don't have, we don't have many listeners. In we fact, <laughs> as a tangent, yeah, this one is going to go longer. As a tangent, I've been thinking this week about if there's anything interesting that we can do with the fact that almost no one listens to this show. <laughs> oh, yeah? 
And uh, one of them is we can just interact with every single person, right? Yeah. So here's my pitch. If you're listening to this show right now, if you send an email to the Too Rash, Too Unadvised Gmail with a mailing address, I will write you a personalized letter just because you're a listener to this show and spend the dollar that it will cost to mail it out to you. You say dollar, just wait until someone... We have we have at least some listeners from Australia. Some motherfucker's gonna send you an email from and claim to be from, like, Antarctica. Look, I'm not saying this is gonna be a care package with, like, Canadian maple syrup in it. We're talking a small postcard or letter. And I reserve the right to ignore you if I feel like it. But at least for now, if you send us an email with a P.O. box, I will send you a letter. Because we have, I think, 28 subscribers. And I can write 28 letters. Which isn't something you can get from a podcast that's popular. That that is true enough. Um, on On the subject of how long it should be, like... Uh, the the length of episodes fluctuated wildly based on the length and complexity of the books that we were talking about. So there is almost no, uh, how how shall I put it, certainty in how long an episode of Uncultured Swine is going to be. And that doesn't seem to be an issue. I did actually run a poll on whether people wanted more consistency or wanted the episodes to, like, get shorter and we should just like cut things down and not go on so many tangents and like near universally everyone said keep them as long as you want to we're fine with more content see th- what makes me worried about well, this is because i i reached out points on the podcast i shut to people to people for advice i should actually send you the advice i got Canadian. um and one of the pieces of advice i got was that people say they want longer podcasts but they don't <laughs> Yeah, so that might be an issue. Like, it may be, it may make the podcast less less approachable. Um, but our early episodes are all really short, so I feel like they're a good jumping in point. Well, let's let's do this. We'll we'll record this one a little long because yeah. we're going to have a lot to talk about, yeah. mm-hmm. and there's a guest on, and we'll see what people have to say about it. Like, if I have to send out a bunch of letters apologizing. <laughs> for why this one was suddenly too much. We'll deal with that as it comes. Yeah. Um, um, and I'm willing to like, I don't know. But no, I have been, mm-hmm. I have been intentionally, as I saw the clock ticking on our recording in the past, trying to move the pace along so that we could hit like a 45 to 50 minute edited episode. Mm-hmm. I, I also worry that like my capacity for staying on topic will decrease as time goes on. I found that that isn't an issue. You tend to, like, your desire to go eat or pee or whatever tends to make you more focused as you go on. I. Really? I don't know if that's true for me. <laughs> I went to the bathroom before well, this, it, it, well, and it, I can It's kind it. of a self-limiting thing, because generally someone wants to get out of the recording, so they'll just be like, okay, come on, let's get oh, okay. back to the topic. We're nearly done. <laughs> you know what? I think I buy that. My best days have been the days that I did Ethics Bowl. And at the end of Ethics Bowl, I'm not tired and worn out. I'm usually as on top of talking as I ever am. This is true. It's I like mean, you ramp into it. I, I, I still remember like the time that we did Ethics Bowl and then like did a 
five hour long RPG as we drove home from Ethics Bowl. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was on fire that day. Right? So was I. We were all doing great. Okay, so one of the notes you had, by the way, while we're busy doing our long tangent podcast, that thing that I just did, where it sounded like I edited that in from later, uh, no, unfortunately, many of my natural speaking patterns just sound like bad audio edits, <laughs> and I'm going to work on that, but just believe me that it isn't what's happening. See, if you hadn't said it, I wouldn't have noticed that. <laughs> oh, you're going to notice now. <laughs> No, I, I think that's just how I expect people to talk. Like, in my mind, the way people talk is the way they talk on podcasts, because I listen to so many podcasts. So anytime someone just, like, doesn't have anything to say, including me, I'm just like, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with the editor for life? <laughs> uh, one of your notes was about Dominic and how he was dressed... Your note was about Dominic and how if we were going to call Dominic a woman because of his dress, we would also have to call George Washington a woman because of their dress. And I'm pretty sure that's because Dominic was dressed in that style, which involved a lot of what now code as feminine things, right? Like, you know, britches and high socks and ribbons. Right, but, so so to clarify, in the text, um, Mycroft is explaining why he thinks that Dominic should use male pronouns, or why he describes Dominic with male pronouns. And he mm -hmm. says, uh, the outfit that Dominic is wearing might seem female-coded, and indeed, Dominic is sexed female. You know, they've got breasts and so forth. But uh, the... It would... If I were to call him female... I would have to call all, like, similar patriarch figures as he is trying to be female. So I would have to regender all those 18th century figures like George Washington, for example, as female. What I was, what I was getting at there, though, is that it doesn't even occur to him, and it's not how he's using the words to think I should use female pronouns because Dominic is sexed female. I feel like it does occur to him because he points out that he isn't doing it. I think the point he's making is about how styles of dress have changed. But the point he's making is, is not, you might think that I should sex, that I should use the, the, the female pronouns because Dominic is female. The point he's making is, you might think I should use female pronouns because you might think that the gender role Dominic is displaying is actually a female gender role. Like, he doesn't care about the sex of oh. people in regards to pronouns at all. He only cares about the gender roles they're displaying. That You know what? I... I take your point now, and I think I was just implicitly assuming that when I really shouldn't have been. It's, uh, there's an interesting example of this one with Carlisle, right? Because we get to mention that Carlisle, uh, that Markov would prefer to use she, her pronouns for all cousins. Yeah, because he sees them as coded maternal. He sees the, the entire cousin organization as basically the mothers of the world, and so he thinks all cousins should ideally be coded female. Yeah, and... But, uh... He can't. 
because Carlisle, uh, as we've talked about earlier in the, in the podcast, is probably heir to some aristocratic deal. He can only inherit if he's a guy. Well, more specifically, he says that an outside force wishes us to remember that Carlisle is a prince. So someone is compelling him to use male pronouns. Okay, so hear me out, though. We Everyone's a little weird about pronouns. By an outside force compelling us to remember that he is a prince, is that intended to communicate to the audience that Carlisle is physically male or is that to communicate to the audience that Carlyle displays some princely attributes that we don't necessarily understand the significance of from our no, perspective? I, I think very literally that means this is an account he's writing down for like the cops or whatever. Um, and someone is telling him you can't use female pronouns for Carlyle. It will cause legal problems in this account. Why would there be legal problems, it, though? No one uses gendered program, pronouns. Be, because, well, because somebody does. I mean, there are still aristocrats and weirdos that are using, uh, that seem to be doing this. And in fact, the people who seem to be doing this seem to be aristocrats and weirdos. Namely, Dominic, uh, whatever the name of that lady okay. is, who is the wife of the Mitsubishi company. <laughs> and whatever the, <laughs> you know who I mean. Um... And, uh, the Lord of Europe. I would like to hear you attempt to pronounce the wife of the Mitsubishi Bashes later. No, I can't, because I don't remember it. I'm very bad with names. I'm good with notes, bad with names. I don't know what it is. Uh, uh it's Denai. Oh, yeah, it's pronounced Denai, exactly as you said it. <laughs> Unless it isn't. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I always think it's Denai. Uh, in the case, um, yeah. also, well, I think you're that's not how mean, a lot of people pronounce it. I think you mean Ganymede when you say the Lord of Europe, who is specifically not the Lord of Europe and is salty about it. Well, yeah, but he's he's a duke, right? He, but he's a duke rather than a lady, you know. So he's picking one. Oh, is that what you meant by lord? Like, yeah, but I just meant Europe is like a a different thing. Sorry, not Duke. I'm. It's Lord and Lady. He's a Duke rather than a Duchess. Yes. So he is picking one. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, hmm. Yeah, no, that, that is interesting. And we know... And Danae keeps calling him Big Brother as well. This is also true. That feels no, that, gendered. That could be Carlisle injecting it. However, it is mentioned specifically that he has to be the duke of wherever it is he is of like france or whatever because he can't be the king or anything more formal so i assume he actually is using a term like that no no mycroft can't be injecting it because mycroft had a direct feed to this and clearly the trackers keep data so the actual words danae was using was uh grand frere yeah, but Mycroft Except is willing to change better. the text to, like, fit his own prejudices. Remember, he changes the word they use for J.D. Mason, for example, so that it's easier for the readers to interpret. I assume he would do the same things for what uh, ways they're referring to each other. Uh, but he made such a big deal of how he was changing it. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, another thing, if we're talking about how text has changed, we, we should note that this text is written 
with the consent of, of everyone who was portrayed in it. Yeah, so, um, the text is... I, I don't know if you pointed this out, because I, you know, I have not listened to the last three episodes of your podcast, because they haven't been released yet as we record this, but hmm. the text's actual format is, this is like a confession or legal statement that he is giving in court. Like, he, there, there are lines that mention that he is compelled to write this by people... And that, like, the police are basically reading over his shoulder. So I take it that is what this is. I don't think... I, I think you're wrong about that. I think that the format of the text is a, a, a gospel. Hmm. Like a revel... Like a... Like this is yeah, something Bible he's writing style. to explain stuff to people? Yeah, I think he's writing... Okay, so here's... Here's my theory. I think Bridger is ultimately going to bring... Since the last episode, uh, I've done some thinking on what I believe the plot of this story is. Mm-hmm. I think Bridger is going to ultimately bring religion back to the people because he's clearly some sort of magic deity and we're in a world where religion has gone away. So I think Bridger is like a Jesus figure and Mycroft is now, in retrospect, writing like the Gospel of Bridger for posterity uh and i by the way don't quite agree with that i think if bridger animates any like vague conceptual thing to make it like to 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 bring something ideological into reality it's going to be voltaire rather than a religion no no i don't think that bridger is going to animate god i mean i think bridger is going to be the focal point of a religion well, but I, I totally don't agree with that because, like, the he constantly points out that you might not believe in Bridger. And if Bridger, like, goes on TV all the time and shows that he has deific powers, then I don't think that a bunch of people would, like, actively disbelieve in him. I mean... Uh, I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't believe that Penn and Teller are actual wizards. Yeah, but if Jesus was, like, <laughs> going on TV and being like... Hi, the amazing Randy's descendant. I'm going to <laughs> split the sea. And he was like, okay, well, I've set up these controls so that it, uh, we know it's not a fake. And Jesus was like, okay. And then he split the sea in half. I would believe in Jesus. I'd still be pretty skeptical, to be honest. <laughs> okay, I mean, I guess I would require slightly more, but at that point, not much more. Well, I think that's why it's going to work to bring religion back. Um, so... Yeah. I disagree that... You, you, I think your, your, your idea is that, Johnny, is that this is like some... Uh, document is given to the cops, and I don't think it's to one singular body, because we have a list of permissions, um, and there's not one body, right? It's like... A, it's like a dozen <laughs> people yeah, who like, signed off off on this. Wh- where is the the like specification that everyone has needed to sign off on this? I don't remember. Oh, that. it's the very beginning. Uh, it's right at the start of the book. Mm, okay, it's in the pages that you might flip over, thinking they're just legal nonsense before you hit the book proper. What if all of them die? What if all if they're all dead? It's a very different kind of story, I guess. 
That well, seems plausible, that's, too, okay. based on how things are Fair going. Enough. No, no, they will all be dead by the time the presumed reader, 500 years from now, is reading this. True, yeah. That's true. This could be an account that he was writing secretly. I, I, that seems plausible based on the way he writes it, but I really think this is more likely to be a legal testimony. I don't, okay, I don't see why, if he was secretly writing it, he would include permissions page. Because I assume he actually got permission from a very small number of people. He doesn't. He, he, it says, actually, that um, with the consent of all free and unfree living persons here and betrayed. Okay, okay, but hear me out. Mycroft is personal best friends with all of the most important people in the world. Also, it specifies living persons. It's, it does not include the dead. Oh. And I would not be surprised if everyone important dies. <laughs> At least all the people. That's an excellent point. <laughs> Interesting. And yeah, and he could just like shoot a text to the survivors. <laughs> he knows them all. True. He knows fucking everyone. I still really want to figure out what this guy's backstory is, where he knows every single fucking person in the world. <laughs> yes, and we'll get into that in these chapters. The other element from your pre-story notes I want to talk about is you have a theory as to what Mycroft did. I think it's a yeah, garbage so, theory, but I'd like to ob- poke holes in it on the air. Obviously, he's a criminal. You know, he's done something um, mm. to become a servant. Um, what is what is the actual proper Servicer. term? It's not servant. Servicer, thank you. Um, there are... So, the, the things he mentions are pretty much any crime that indicates you have something to give penance for, but does not indicate that you're necessarily dangerous to the public at large if you're just wandering around. So he mentions, like, crimes of passion, um, uh, especially anything you do for personal profit, um, and anything just generally uh, despicable but not terribly repeatable. Um, Also, when he talks about gag genes... He talked about how gag genes are basically used in very few circumstances, but broadly speaking, when the circumstances of someone's birth are too terrible to contemplate and they would get no benefit out of learning how they went up for adoption, basically. Um, so I think that uh, Mycroft raped What's-Her-Face, wife of the Mitsubishi company, because I'm pretty sure they were in the same Bosch and I think that uh, that adds up with how, uh, what's his name, Martin is discussed. Okay, uh, here's why I think you're wrong about that. I, I want to learn more about I don't think they were theory. in the same bash. But more importantly, I'm pretty sure Carlisle... Wait, Martin? You think Mycroft is Martin's father, Martin Guildbreaker... Oh, I'm sorry. No, Dene? no, no, no. Carlisle, Carlisle. I'm again <laughs> names. Okay. okay. The, I... the one who's her the one who is her son. Okay. Right. Uh, well, that could just be a real big swing you were taking. Uh... <laughs> yeah, just out of nowhere. <laughs> From downtown, just Martin is her son. No. No, I'm I don't pretty sure... to believe that. I'm pretty sure Carlisle is the son of Denai and Hotaka. Who's Hotaka again? Her husband. Then why? (laughs) Because they'd be, like, they're both from proud, uh, blood 
ethnically important lines, and so they there was a little thing made about how they couldn't have publicly had a child. Uh, yeah, that was very interesting. Does that seem sufficient to you? Because when when it's discussed that when gag genes are discussed, it talks about how like very few things are sufficient that you're gonna get gag genes. Like you're uh, yeah. All- like, you are the secret child of one of the most important people in the world, and the younger sister of another most important person in the world, who's also that first most important person's wife. Hmm. You don't think they could get a gag gene put in place? Perhaps. Uh, okay. For their Backup secret theory. child? <laughs> yes, yes. That seems plausible. Uh, it's just that it's only the courts that decide that, and they seem implausibly impartial and that seems like something that purely benefits the mitsubishi family so i'm not sure if they would have given a gag gene because the ostensible purpose of a gag gene isn't to help the people who like conceive the child it's to help the child not get damaged by learning something Wait, why do you think the right. courts are implausibly impartial because that's how the censor is discussed and i assume it's similar do you here's my other point Minecraft about the censor yeah, I believe, okay. I believe the censor isn't... Well, I believe that the actual censor is very impartial. I believe that they the office probably has very little authority to make choices. They have to make their choices entirely based off of economic mm-hmm. metrics. But I also think those economic metrics aren't impartial and are probably being fiddled with. Because when he discusses them, he discusses that they are like unto a set of wires imitating a rabbit when the rabbit is long since gone. So I assume the metrics are being fucked with to fuck with the sensor office, but the, the sensor can't do anything about that because he has no power. I... Okay. Right, here's my other okay, point. Yeah. If you, To save you <laughs> from potentially getting into spoiler territory. I heard that pause. Um, <laughs> whatever... Uh, Mycroft did, we know that it mangled his ear. And my initial read of that was that he had ripped his tracker off, but apparently they can just come off. So clearly something ear-destroying happened, unless he, like, got in a fight with Mike Tyson while he was busy siring bastard children with Denae. So Um, whatever he did, it required him to go off the tracker grid, right? Um, but it's not something obvious or other people would have done it, right? Like, he he pretended to use the canner device. He never had it, as far as we can tell. You know, as far as he keeps telling people. Maybe that's a double bluff. But, Look, Mycroft uh, couldn't do a double bluff. <laughs> Mycroft couldn't do a single bluff. You know, you say that, and it is true that he seems really bad at hiding things. But at the same time, he has maintained hiding things for a very long time, which seems implausible if he's as stupid as he seems. I genuinely, genuinely think that that's the worst and least explicable element of this story. Is that it expects me to buy that this jackass somehow (laughs) kept this important a secret for all of this time. I feel like it's gotta be... You know that gag on... I think it was Family Guy. It might have been The Simpsons. No, it was The Simpsons with Mr. Burns. Where it's just like... There's so many diseases in your body that they cancel each other out and can't affect you. It's like, there are so many people that should have been able to just ask him things that they, like, intercepted each other and weren't able to do it. I have additional data 
for my Mycroft <laughs> is the worst theory. And when I bring it up, I'm going to call back to this part of this conversation because Mycroft is, in fact, the worst, especially at Secrets. He, yeah, he's he's not very good at them. But what uh, my backup theory, if it's not the rape thing, because, OK, mm -hmm. yes, I, I frankly forgot that there was a thing about how Dene and her, her husband can't have kids. That's that's plausible. However, backup thing he could have caused the car crash that orphaned Sniper. Not Sniper. Maybe. Leslie. Her name is also Sniper. I don't think that's no, true. No, it isn't. Those are two different characters. Her, Leslie married Leslie Occam. Sniper. No, no. Leslie married Occam, not Sniper. Motherfucker. Why are there so many characters in this story? I don't know. They kept having roles to fill. All right, fair enough. But perhaps he caused the car crash that orphaned Leslie. Yeah. Um, maybe. Do we know how old Mycroft is? I don't know how old Mycroft is. And in fact, I thought I, I thought there might be a thing coming with him being, like, incredibly old. But apparently the approximate uh, maximum that their drugs can extend life to is only 130 years. When? Yeah, I thought that was going to happen to Danae. Who was going to turn out to be like five hundred? Uh, we do know that this will have come out already in the previous podcasts that we've recorded. But I really thought she was going to turn out to be like super, super old, and that turns out to have been a lie. We know that. Um, we know that Carlisle, when Carlisle and Mycroft were talking, uh, after the the second time they met. Uh, and Carlisle mm -hmm. was saying, oh, you could have been a, a sensei. Were you a sensei? He asked. Um, Mycroft responded that he did his crime too early to be a sensei. So we have some, like, soft cat on age. That doesn't actually tell us anything about how old he is, though. I guess it's a timeline, which you can use to do things later. Right, we know he's at least old enough to have become a sensei. Yeah, and he did whatever he did before, like, before when he was, wasn't old enough to become a sensei. When he was young. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the ages of people, by the way, one more opportunity to prove that I wasn't feeling about in the blind. We accidentally talked about this briefly before we started recording. How old uh, did you think Bridger was when you were reading this story? He seems very young. I thought he was probably like a, you know, a little older than a toddler. Yeah, that's what I thought too. It turns out Bridger is 13, right? Yes. Yeah, so is Bridger developmentally disabled? He might be. I mean, like he's not stupid, but he does act in a very childish way that is more childish than I would expect from a 13-year-old. 13 is like, you're, you know, starring in... Fuck, what's that Stephen King book? Um, Stand By Me? Yes, no, Stand wait, By Me. No, wait, the body. book was called The Body. The adaptation was called Stand By Me. That's right. The Body is the short story where, <laughs> which starts with the immortal line, Hey kid, you want to see a dead body? Which is, you know, the best way for any story to start. But, uh, yeah, that, that's like, that's the level of development you're at if you're like 13. You know, Bridger seems a little youthful for 13. Um, 
So we know that this is this is my response to this is that we know that um whatever anti-aging thing people have delays aging. But would you start taking it immediately? Who knows? I mean, did I just I drop a call? Why? I mean, we don't know. I mean, it, the the way that the anti-aging drug is described hello? as... It, hello? Uh, Can you hear us? Hello? You there? Hmm. Hello? Let's see if I get you back. Can you hear us, Liam? Well, while we're waiting for Liam, I hope that I get invited on another podcast so that on that podcast I can say, you may know me from such podcasts as Too Rash, Too Unadvised, in which I said, you may know me from such podcasts as The Bayesian Conspiracy, in which I said, you may know me from such podcasts as Uncultured Swine, in which we discuss the culture books. Hello? Hello. Okay, now I can hear you. Oh, have you have you two both been there the entire yeah. time? Yes. We, there's Great. been no issues for yeah. us. Then we didn't lose anything. Good. Cool. Okay. Um, what was I saying about Bridger? Oh, yes, I was talking about the drug. Mm-hmm. So the drug, um, it is described as keeping people in a perpetual are they 18 or are they 30 state for a long part of their life. So I assume you start taking it in your physical prime and it, like, keeps you approximately there. I can't see why you would take it as a kid and just stay a kid, especially if it stops your development in a way that stops you from, like, improving. I I guess that's, like, one way you could think about the drug doing it. Um, and, like, really, there's, like, a lot of ways the drug could do it. And it'll, it'll depend on details, which you may or may not get in the story. Uh, but... I, uh, know actually a lot of anti-aging people, people who, like, want to do life and succession, and a lot of the problems they talk about are problems to do with, um, senescence, and these processes that they talk about don't, I think, don't start when you're, like, old. They start pretty early, and you want to what they want to do is to change how they function, and that might require doing work early. Okay, so it that is plausible if the like extended lifespans of this place require you to stay in a childlike state for longer, developmentally speaking, than we in modern times have to. So that could be an explanation. It doesn't seem like a more likely explanation, though, than there's something wrong with Bridger. To be fair, like... They found him as an abandoned child, didn't yes. they? So, like, he well, might have infant. had some... Yeah, but he was old enough that he was playing with toy soldiers. I don't know. I, I Didn't we find out that Thisbe literally found him as, a like, an infant? And Mycroft found... Mycroft then got looped in later, after he'd made some stuff be alive? Yeah, I believe so. Like, th- when they found him, he had already made, the, like, some of his toys alive. So no, I when Mycroft was... found him, Thisbe found him as a baby, did she not? I don't no. know. I thought the shoulders were there at the longest. 
Which is also, by the way, very strange in a world that makes adoption, like, trivial. That there would even be an abandoned baby. Well, that's why I think he's Jesus. Okay, but Immaculate Conception <laughs> doesn't actually make that any simpler, unless you're saying that he just, like, popped out of nowhere. Uh, yes, I'm saying that the most Immaculate Conception doesn't involve any people. <laughs> okay, you you make a fair point, but, like, uh, only tangentially Jesus. Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm going on a limb at this point to make that one fit. <laughs> Still miraculously though, like... Yeah, it, it, it is still miraculous. It's just not the regular miracle. Okay, so do we want to get into <laughs> uh, the chapters? I'm just thinking reverse immaculate <laughs> conception. It's like a dude nut somewhere and then like the child appeared elsewhere <laughs> nine months no, no. later. The child would need to be distributed across a series of wombs. Wait, what? How, how is that immaculate? Con- how is that? How, how does that relate to immaculate conception? Because instead of having... One person, as opposed to two, we go from two people to many. We're just moving the opposite direction. One, maybe one mother gets a leg, one mother gets the eyes. I don't know how we're going to split this up. That sounds like a horror story. I'm not saying it doesn't sound bad. I'm just saying it's the natural opposite. That also, by the way, is JoJo's part seven to a T. Is it really? Uh, spoilers for JoJo's Part 7. In JoJo's Part 7, the main object of the story is to find the parts of Jesus, which have been scattered across the world, and if you get them all, you get magic powers. And if you get any of them, you get magic powers, but if you get them all, you get a better magic power. Um, uh, and one of them, and possibly more of them, appear inside the wombs of women. I mean, it's a natural place for Jesus to appear. So anyway, right. Let's talk about the chapters. <laughs> so we open chapter what a novel twelve. Concept. <laughs> yeah, we open chapter twelve uh, with the emperor of the masons walking in, who it turns out can order executions. Yes. So that's three people we now know of who can kill people, but it sounds like yeah, this that- one, it's a little more legal. Yeah, Mycroft mentioned that like the power over life and death is something that they take a lot of note in and like give the appropriate significance to. So the fact that this guy can not just kill people when needed, but actually order people to be killed seems like it implicitly has a lot of significance. Yes. And then right away, the jig is up. It's out. Someone is reporting on the news about the theft and the canner device. I really didn't think this would happen as fast as it happened. Yeah, it's just like uh, one of Mitsubishi Dude's kids comes on the TV and is like, oh, my conscience can't let me keep it a secret. I must tell the world that all this shit it, that it happened. It wasn't happened. one of the Mitsubishi right. Bash children. It was, it, was, someone. it was the newspaper editor Nakahara, who, do you think he's in on the plan? Like, do you think he knows what he's participating in? generous for you to assume there is a plan oh there's absolutely a plan (laughs) what are you talking about too many weird things have happened for this not to be plotted by someone i suspect the utopians um (laughs) but does nakahara know or is he just a stooge you can't just say the utopians because the most inscrutable group is the one most likely to have a weird plan (laughs) that's not why 
I think it's the utopians <laughs> because when we looked at the data in the previous chapter, the utopians are going to do great when the world collapses, according to the who's the who's the Hari Seldon from this universe? Uh, Kotaku uh, Yes, according He's, to his which prediction. Which is interesting. It's, it's interesting Kotaku-Mari. that. Sorry. The backstory of Mycroft seems to be that he was working with those guys. Like, he was working for an economics bosh, which is cool. uh, But, like, why would that have led him to do a horrible crime? Don't know. Um, Anyway, we get the outcome of all of this from his prediction. And the Utopians stand to gain a lot from all of this stuff coming out and what's going to happen in the fallout. And also... The Utopians, you know, are really inscrutable and stuff. And if there's one organization that's super inscrutable and has the most to gain and is the only one that isn't harmed by all the goings on, I'm going to be skeptical of them. But do you, don't you trust... But what if they're being framed? Don't you trust Mycroft? No. Mycroft doesn't, tr- doesn't, doesn't um, think it's the Utopians. I the opposite of trust Mycroft's detective and lying skills. <laughs> well, you... But on the other hand, Mycroft, like, is writing from the future, right? So if it's the Utopians, he knows it's the Utopians. And he tells us it's not the Utopians. Well, he think? No, he doesn't, though. <laughs> he tells us that he doesn't think at the time it was the Utopians. I don't know. I feel like he would be inclined to mention it if it was okay. the Utopians. We'll get into that when we hit the Utopians. Fine. Let's- Let's get more than a page into what happened in the book. <laughs> Fine, I will stop interrupting. Uh, so my my questions so far were, do we think Nakahara is in on the plan? Does the planner know about the prophecy? And either way, I blame Mycroft. <laughs> so the... the Nakahara didn't write the Black Sacker, uh, right? They mean the list? He's no. the editor the- of the paper. Right, but this one he didn't write. Usually he does, but he didn't write no. the list. Uh, no. That's someone else. It was written by Hotaka's adopted daughter. Yeah, so this could just be personal vendetta. Like, fuck you, you think you can not get me to write the list? I'm gonna mess with all your plans. I think it was implied that he, like, shoved it off onto an assistant because he didn't feel like it. I don't th- That seems impossible. It wasn't Nakahara who was going to write the 710 list. I don't think we know that. Oh, it was someone else? I think so. No, no, no. Nakahara always writes the 710 list. This is mentioned when they, when like, uh, this is mentioned several times. Like, as soon as he sees it, Mycroft says, Nakahara always writes the 710 list, but this is not the 710 list he would write. So I know someone else it's... wrote it. And so I know something is weird about the Black it, That name is not Nakahara. It's, um... One second. It, it, so it's not... Sugiyama. The editor of the paper doesn't write the list. Sugiyama. Someone no, else no. wrote. Usually, usually he does. Someone else did. Usually Sugiyama time. writes the list. I that thought sounds true. it explicitly said that Nakahara usually writes. Where? It. Well, I, thought I mean, it... it's not that weird for the editor of a paper not to also be a writer for that paper. Usually editing is a different job. I, I could have sworn that it said that he the, the editor usually writes the Black Soccer. They're also like multiple editors. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So he's now announced to the world that the Canner device is out there. I'm not convinced that the Canner device is actually out there. 
I'm not convinced point. the Kanner device exists. <laughs> yeah. But they clearly want people to think that the Kanner device is out there. Uh, it does certainly then... make... It, it gives you some plausible deniability because the way it works involves, like, swapping a thousand different tracker signals to swap two tracker signals, which means that there are a bunch of people that you don't know anything about. Yes, which we get that in the next chapter, but since it's been brought up early... I think Eureka must be involved in this because there's no way Eureka didn't notice all of the data being weird in the bash while the canner device was cannering its way through. Eureka picked out immediately that Carlisle had come back at a weird time for him to have come back. But you expect me to believe that Eureka didn't see anything strange about everyone's patterns shifting a thousand times? Eureka? And then well, someone leaving? But she had a reason to focus on him, right? Like... You you maybe wouldn't notice at the level of fidelity that she has if, like, a couple pixels swap places from time to time. But she had a reason to, like, look into Mycroft's pathing and see if there was anything weird with it. Also, I You're telling me someone who can organize a billion cars at a time doesn't have the level of fidelity to notice all of her best friends suddenly being weird? She doesn't... Well, for one thing... She the tracker signals she sees only tell her about car related data. So unless some of them were actively driving in a car or about to get in a car, no, I don't think yeah, she noticed. Carlisle asked specifically does she does do they have access to the uh tracker data? And they say no. I have access to the car data. So allows me to infer what people want or where people are. Yeah, so swapping tracker signals wouldn't alert her. Okay, but the car data is interpreted in the way that, like, Facebook would interpret it, where it's anything that could even plausibly relate to whether or not you're going to order a car soon. Yeah, but this would not, th this would only, like, feed her tangential data. It would be like, she sees somewhere that her, like, that the probability someone is about to get into a car data does something weird, but she maybe wouldn't interpret that as, like, okay, the tracker signals got swapped. She would interpret that as, like, uh, I guess they, like, just said out loud, I'm going to go get a car, rather than anything else. Or even, I don't think, like, the, 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 the likelihood someone is going to get a car hasn't changed, right? Just, like, the name tag. Well, but it would if you, like, if you swap tracker signals and that changes all the data that's being reported, then it would change because you become another person. Yeah. Right? Like, your your data would rapidly change as every metric about you changes in that one second. Yeah, but we don't know if, like, they cross-reference databases like that. I mean, maybe they do. And maybe... Well, it sounds like they okay. do, because she described Carlisle as being a pointy yellow thing. Well, that's, that's just based on... That could be true just based on her data, on their data. Yeah, she's describing him as like a waveform on a graph. Like, that's not... If your best but that friend... that graph could be pulling data from anything. Yeah, but if your best friend suddenly was a different waveform on the graph, I just feel like you'd notice that. Or if you noticed well, that um, the really shy one suddenly just walked out into the middle of the road and went to do something, that didn't set off any alarm bells. What's the really well, shy I, I one's name? I don't think she gets data like they have walked out into the middle of the road. She gets data like probability of something increased or decreased by X percent. Like she sees the graph change, but she doesn't see why it changes. She hmm. actually, yeah, she, she does specifically say that 
she's delighted to talk to Kyle because they don't often get to talk to people whose patterns have changed. Yeah, she, she doesn't know any of the inciting factors. She, she just knows that the system has interpreted a probabilistic change. But then if the people who you know the best had their patterns change and you're excited to talk to people when their patterns change, see Carlisle, why didn't she ask anyone? Yeah, that's true. She she might have plausibly done that, but I feel like the patterns probably do change pretty rapidly based on certain plausible things that might happen. Like, again, if you literally say, I'm going to get a car and leave, I feel like if the tracker picks that up, your pattern is going to change fucking rapidly as it goes to like 100% needs a car. See, I got the sense that it was pulling from more holistic data than you saying out loud call me an uber please it sounded See, to I me assume like it, i assume it does but if it also picks up on that data then you would expect rapid changes yes sometimes i don't know it it sets off alarm bells the way this is described to me and given what i know of eureka okay. fair enough prediction registered eureka and then uh, where are we um everyone's in a panic because you know the world is collapsing <laughs> understandable we get the emperor clearly being a huge uh freedom of information guy i like the emperor i don't it's very uh bentham i don't think the emperor thinks that freedom of information is like a good thing i think he i think he thinks that it's inevitable look whatever it takes <laughs> <laughs> He's like, information wants to be free, and damn it all, I am not as powerful as information. Yeah, it was very much a, you don't try that because it's a stupid thing to try, not a, you did something immoral. And that's exactly what we've actually been told to expect from him. Mm -hmm. I know that this is just them playing the expectations completely straight, but it was still fun to see that just be precisely what I thought it was going to be. He 100% is the worst secret keeper going because he doesn't think it's possible <laughs> and will not try. Just like Mycroft. <laughs> I feel like Mycroft wants to keep secrets. He's just really bad at it. Yeah, look, I opened this book so much more on Mycroft's side. <laughs> and everything he does, I respect him less. <laughs> Well, surely you must respect him slightly more for stopping that random gang rape. Okay, uh, again, that's our next chapter. But he doesn't, uh... He only stops it because he felt like the people about to be assaulted didn't deserve it. And he then immediately says, like, Yeah, sometimes when children are the victim of horrible assaults, I don't care. They had it coming. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He says that there is a very specific class of people that he doesn't care if they get sexually assaulted. Yeah, and servicers. Talking, yeah, servicers, because he has a huge co victim. He has a huge complex about how servicers are deserving of pain. That's why he starves himself. Yeah, uh, I understand the principle that he's going for. It just doesn't make me respect him a whole bunch more. Fine, but like everyone other than that, he I don't like if it was anyone other than a servicer, he presumably would have helped them. I also don't think that that um he is okay 
with that happening with services. I think he understands. He explicitly he is seems okay pretty with okay it. That okay is with what it. he says. <laughs> Let me see if I can pull up the quote. It's something like, yeah, sometimes I'll hold children shaking in my arms throughout the entire night because of what happened to them. Pfft, fuck them. They had it coming. He literally says that they, that they are deserving of punishment. Like, he does not... Yeah, there, there is no ambiguity with what he says. He has no sympathy for other services. Uh, oh, no, I see what you're saying. Services are common targets that I can forgive. Forgiving someone is different from saying that it's an okay thing to do. Sure, uh, I guess. No, no, keep, keep reading that line. I'm looking for it. I can forgive I think it gets worse. for services called guilty. After the... Um, even when the victims are young friends who crawl back to the, the dorms and spend nights shaking in my arms, I can forgive. But services are guilty. I don't. I don't read that as saying that it's okay what happens to services. I read that as saying um, he understands why they would do this to services and forgives it for that reason. But he, from the way he talks, he does at least at some level, understand why the people who are attacking the Utopians are doing it, too. Like, he, he thinks that, like, yeah, you're drunk and you're being idiots, that's, like, plausible. Um, I don't think the understanding He also is, like... thinks it's a natural impulse. We get that whole starving lion thing, which is why yeah, I now course, think... Yeah, of course, because he's fucking Mycroft. He's like, yeah, everybody wants to sexually assault everybody at all times because they're all obsessed with sex, like I am. They might be. We... <laughs> We've only had one perspective character. This um, is true. And you look at a Burger King commercial and tell me that's not indicative of the real world. <laughs> okay, but, like, there's a difference between everybody kinda has, like, sex on their brain and everybody secretly wants to be a rapist. No, no, I think he says everybody secretly wants to do violence. Yeah. Which may or may not include rape. Which... Potentially in an, a different context. There's all kinds of non-sexual violence. In fact, sure. by the numbers, it's probably most of violence. Yeah, like, he's, what, he, he has a thing where he says, like, there is a natural tendency towards violence or something like people naturally think about doing violence in some circumstances. And that's a, shall we say, much weaker conjecture. Um, but the... I seem to recall the framing being very much that everybody kind of has desires to be rapacious. I didn't read that into it. Neither did I. I just read the violence element. And, uh, Perhaps I'm assuming the worst of my Liam, thought. you said you want to get to it's, ethics. It's, uh, I don't think... I think the understanding is an ethical one. Like, because would he be... Uh, Johnny said he, he understands what's happening with Utopians. I think he understands... He, he understands why they would do this to utopians. I think he understands on a functional level. But he thinks that, uh, what he says is, what penance must the utopians pay if the only crime is thinking of the future? So he, he, on a moral level, he doesn't understand why utopians would, be pun would have this happen to them. But he does understand why services would ha have this happen to them. Hmm. What's In a the... sort of just world fallacy yeah. kind of way of thinking about things. Uh, I suppose I agree that that's what I think he's doing. I didn't read very far. 
that he doesn't care much about violence and bad things happening to servicers is sure. Uh, I don't think that necessarily speaks to whether or not he cares about violence and bad things happening to non-servicers. So I don't think he particularly... I don't think he would have been more likely to save a utopian than a humanist. Although he does seem fond of the utopians. Um, mm -hmm. But I do... Maybe the utopians are more common targets, but that's more what my takeaway was than this is a crucial element of his moral system. At least the utopian I mean, section. Due to base rates, they, they kind of can't be more common targets because there's almost... Like, compared to the rest of the population, there are almost no utopians. So, uh, but they may be more likely as targets, you know, I think it depends on what you're conditioning on, but I could go know what you mean. Um, like... Perhaps people treat utopians poorly in a way that we're not necessarily privy to yet. I mean... I don't think that... We're privy to one way. Well, I, I don't know if that's necessary. Yeah, obviously, they don't have uh, sections in the Pantheon, and Mycroft thinks that's bad. Well, I was talking about the... Yeah, I'd... The the wrestler's attempt at sexual violence, but yes, also that. I mean, yeah, but, but we, we don't, don't know, know if that's that he wouldn't have done that. Trend. Like if you if a drunk guy is walking down the street and he sees a victim, I don't think we can then presume that it's because the victim was a utopian. Fair enough. Maybe he just wanted a victim. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's very plausible. Um Okay. So on the note that services are, are more common are common targets, one of the organizations which is signing off on this book, is the Cousins Commission for the Humane Treatment of Services. Mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. Um, and I wonder if that... I wonder... This is maybe detracts from my point, but I wonder what he would have said if they weren't looking over his shoulder. What, like... We, like he would have said more explicitly, we deserve it and that should be yeah. done? Maybe. I guess. Uh, I, so I think we, that delves too deeply into counterfactual. Yeah, I, it's it's difficult. Although less difficult than it was earlier on in this podcast to do those. Um, we enough. jumped ahead a bit, so let's make sure we hit the rest of the big points in Chapter 12. And we'll go through it kind of quickly. Um, the Emperor describes Martin Guildbreaker as his son. Is that literally, or... Or is this a... The Masons are sort of connected to Christianity, at least in my mind. Is this like a figurative son? Or is he literally the child of Jed? I, I think... So, it's weird. With that, I assumed he was being metaphorical, but I assume J.D. Mason, JD Mason is actually yeah. his son. I think it's Jed, it's, like it's Jed not, not um, Martin, described as the son. Everyone calls him different things. JD, Jed, and Jed Dida are all things that people call him. No, no. Jed Mason, when told Martin Guildbreaker is investigating, thinks and then says, I will leave it to my son. That's not a good Jed Mason voice. I don't do good voices, though, so it might be all you're going to get. I thought, I, I've heard different things from him, but, like, JDD Mason is the one who, like, goes forth and seeks the truth and all that. Yes, he's the emperor. Is he the emperor? Am I forgetting? Jed okay. Mason is the emperor, who is also. No, Jed Mason's not the emperor. Uh, what? Cornell's. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure you're Corn wrong here. JDD Mason is some mysterious person who we keep getting mentioned. 
and Cornell is the emperor. Whoa, whoa. Back up. Are you... Jed Mason isn't the emperor who entered at the start of this chapter. Cornell Mason is. You get his name. I thought that was another name for Jed Mason slash the emperor. It's... Why would it be Cornell and Jed? Because that, Jed like is even a title further in abstraction than like Richard and Dick. That doesn't because it's any... not okay, Jed. It's J dot E dot D dot D, and I'm just contracting. Who the hell is Jed Mason? Cornell he's Mason's the, son. He it is. Yeah, and a mysterious investigator person who they describe as being like obsessed with the truth to and ob, and like going to reveal anything he finds regardless of practicalities. Ah, oh, I thought that was also the emperor. There was a seven ten list. Oh, I see. That I can see why you said then that he's like obsessed with getting things. Yeah, because the emperor did not give off that impression. No, J D Mason is a separate guy who everyone knows, but we haven't met yet. Okay. And everyone calls him different things. Christ. Um, I don't know what's going on again. All right. So the Emperor isn't Jed Mason. No. Yeah, it probably Correct. is actually his son. It's, it's, it's Mason. It's Mason all caps, which is the Emperor, <laughs> and Mason lower, uh, like a normal word, which is the name. Damn, I wish I wasn't listening <laughs> to the audiobook. Trust me, it clearly wouldn't have helped. <laughs> Okay, but yes, J.D. Mason is mentioned, like, a dozen times before this. Like, people keep thinking about him, and he's described as this, like, semi-mythical figure that the public has a lot of respect and trust in, who is, uh, we we learn here, obsessed with revealing the truth, even if it's not within his political interests, which is presumably why people trust him so much. Yeah. Also, that makes me think he's probably, like, that indicates he's Mycroft, but he can't be Mycroft because the public respects him and everyone hates Mycroft. <laughs> I agree. I don't think it's Mycroft. I thought it was the Emperor who shows up and immediately does a Freedom of Information speech. <sighs> okay. Um, what else do we learn? We learned the Gordians are led by Felix Faust, who is likely not the ancient sorcerer that fights the Justice League, but is instead, <laughs> uh, some old guy who is a Brillist, and we learn about the Brillists. I hate the Brillists. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're a bunch of psychometrists, they, they, but they have a, what is, is, what is implied to be an actually accurate model of psychology that pr- does actual predictions that are useful. Hence, uh, why they, uh, hence why they are somewhat successful. Um, uh, Gordian as a corporation has been mentioned before. They're the folks who, by me, by way of economics, were able to like extract all the capital from everywhere yep. in the world, uh, and put it into one big pile. Um, and then use that to institute the whole hive system. They are kind of one of the driving forces between the world as it is. And we get described here that by tying themselves to the whole Brillist organization, they lost a lot of their power, but became an eternal fixture in the world. Here's, uh, here's where my problem stems from. A friend of mine, I want to say in high school, got really into this thing called the... Um, what was it called? The Enneagram personality test. And it, it, it gives you a number from one to nine. And this number, after you answer like 300 questions, tells you your entire personality. And like every other personality test, yes, including Myers-Briggs, it's just the Barnum effect. 
And that's all it's it is. It's just horoscopes for nerds. I and that's all it will ever be. have good, good things with the Big Five. They, they, they have consistent things over time, which is nice. So, yeah, what we are given to assume is that the Briggs tests and, like, Brillist analysis is like that, except it works. Um, and I am willing to believe the story that it works. Uh, you know, actual psychology tests tend to have a lot of, like, people identifying with things that are, like, not super uh, meaningful. But it, to, that is to varying degrees. And we are given to assume that this is the most accurate test that you can give a person. I... Yes, and theoretically, it's functional. But I still really get... I get, like, a a halo anger at remembering <laughs> the long speeches I had to sit through about how cool Enneagram types are and how amazing it is that, oh, did you know that you're a number nine and number nines are more investigative and pursue new information about the world? Did you know that number nines are positive trait, positive trait, negative trait, relatable trait? Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a lot like that. <laughs> um, okay. So, so to me, it, it seems plausible. And like, I know Enneagrams, Maya Briggs are not very... Things that came to determine your entire personality from a small test are currently not great. Um, but I also know of like, the Big Five, which doesn't claim to have your entire personality, but does have some predictive power and does have a consistent test scores uh, over time. But the Big Five kind of makes different claims. The Big Five isn't saying there are 12 types of people, let me tell you which one they are. The Big Five is saying, here are some axes that we have identified that people vary on. Let's see where you land. And I think the Brillist test is more like that. I mean, it's literally like a set of 10... Eight. Let's see if I can just count them. I, I think it was only five. It I was, think it's it, nine. It was nine numbers. Yeah, it's a lot was of numbers. I, I, I seem to recall them saying, like, number, 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 number. I just didn't remember how many. Yeah, it's nine. I think it's nine numbers. It's nine. Because oh, there's nine Enneagram numbers. No, it's eight. And that's the first thing that I thought of. No, it's eight numbers. <laughs> uh, so you have eight axes, axes in which to vary. And we have... Three different examples of people varying on all of the scores. And Brill, like, his, his whole thing, because we, we get Brill discussed in the context of him being opposed by his uh, ideological descendant, who is the one who came up with the Bash organization. He was trying to find a way that you can find people who are ideal for roles and, like, ide and, like, psychologically predetermined to become great people, you know, to, like, impact history in big ways. So presumably there are a couple of Brillist scores where you see them and you're like, that guy can do great things. Well, that things. guy's just really weird. And we actually get... We get another reference to sort of the great man theory of history later on. This is a very great man-friendly book. This is true. We've met about 12 great men. <laughs> Some of them women. Hmm. Uh, and we also get in that same conversation, that Spain fell from politics. This is one of the things I want to talk about. Um, so, Spain... Wait, let me check one thing. God damn it, did I drop again? No, 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 you're still here. 
Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So, Spain fell for politics, and is replaced by someone they refer to as the Outsider. All caps. Also a comic book <laughs> thing, I think. Uh, when I first read that, I thought the author was actually messing with me. <laughs> yeah, so the outsider, I feel like, actually is a character in DC Comics. He's not the main one, because that's the Beyonder, but pretty similar. <laughs> yeah, Felix Faust is also literally a DC Comics character. He's also literally a character they stole from elsewhere, though. Let's be fair. Yes, he fights the Justice League. He also got dragged to hell in the 18th century or whatever. No, that was, um, that was a different Faust. Was it not? That wasn't Felix. No, I know. I'm, sa- I'm saying there's the Felix <laughs> Faust from the original story, and then there's the DC Comics one, and they're very different characters. It could be a Goethe reference, not no, a... No, I, uh... I think that the German Faust... Was not named Felix. I thought it was. No, he is. The, like, the the one in the original story is Felix Faust. The classic German legend, based on the historical Johann sure. Georg Faust. God damn it, Liam, you're going to make me Google these things. I already have. The people on the podcast are going to have to hear me typing. Don't talk while you type. Christ. Okay, so... Faust is bored and depressed with his life as a scholar. After an attempt to take his own life, he calls on the devil for further knowledge and magic powers, which to indulge all the pleasure and knowledge in the world. In response, the devil's representative, Mephistophiles, appears. He makes a bargain with... Fa- uh, it's not telling me Faust's first name. I don't know if Faust's I don't first want to just... name. Mephistopheles. Appears in this story. No, it's Mephistopheles. <laughs> it's not. It's it is Mephistopheles. He feels very unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, uh, nope, it is... That's mm, here. I'm, I'm starting to think that we didn't get a first name. Surely, surely he did. I can um, imagine the character just constantly proclaiming himself as Dr. Faust. Maybe we should read Faust for next yeah, time. Yeah, Heinrich. His first name was Heinrich, yeah. His name was Heinrich was Faust? Yes. Jesus Christ. It's like, I'm not saying it's a bad be. name. A I'm saying name. Felix Faust is a DC comic sorcerer. Damn it. All right, you've got me there. You can tell that it's from comics because it alliterates. <laughs> You're not wrong on that. Oh, uh, okay. So, Spain's fault for politics. He's been replaced by uh, the outsider. And so the question to me is, why is... Well, we can just wait to this at the end, but why is uh, Spain in this group? So it's interesting because when we when we hear about how uh, the Gordian organization fell from power, Mycroft says uh, in in doing that, like they could have become the greatest single power in the world, but they would have inevitably fallen victim to the toppler of empires majority. So maybe Spain was very deliberately like, "Uh oh, we're getting too powerful. We need to bow out before someone takes us out." Isn't Spain? Um... The king of Spain, who's in this room right now. Yeah, yeah. He, he seems but he, like, pretty seems to in have politics. Given up his power, right, to the prime minister. Yeah, but he d- he doesn't have the power that he used to have. Like, because remember when he says like th- there's a line regarding the duke where it says if the king of Spain ran for control of Europe, he would immediately get control of Europe, but he refuses to. He won't put himself on the ballot. 
that's the only reason the Duke of Europe has Duke power. Of, uh, so I wait. think that's what it means, is that the, no, no. the King of Spain refuses to have actual wait. official Academy power. No, 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 the Duke is the humanists. Yeah. The Duke is the leader of the humanists. Yeah. The outsider is the Prime Minister of Europe. Yes. Right. I forgot about that. Okay, so in that case, I'm less sure. Maybe, maybe by stepping out of politics... They meant not running for like king of the humanists, but um, I do. I think not it's know. implied to be. European. He seems pretty in politics. Is the thing? Yeah, I mean, he's standing in a room, but like, full of the most powerful people in the world, discussing the political ramifications of the news. And he, How more in politics he, do we expect him to get? He may have like de facto power but not de jure power right like he maybe has all of his influence and connections still but does not have like actual legislative authority and that's, anymore well then that's not much of a fall <laughs> no that's true I think it's an interesting sort of discussion because um, uh, Spain who has lost any le- political legitimacy like he's not, not legitimacy any de jure power any law, lawful power is in this room, and Casimir Perry is not. Who's Casimir Perry? Jesus Christ, man! Mentioned all the time, Casimir Perry, because nobody likes him. You're kidding me! I literally do not remember when was he mentioned. He was mentioned in the seven ten list thing. He's just up on the seven ten list, and Minecraft doesn't like him. Is Casimir Perry the outsider? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. We'll just say the outsider. Well, I said that. He has a title we've been referring to him as. <laughs> but he's only called the outsider like once. People usually call I him Casimir Perry. He's called the outsider like I... seven times in this conversation. They don't call him by name. In this conversation, they don't. I didn't realize that that was the same person. Yeah, he's the one who's described constantly as nobody likes him, and all of Europe doesn't agree that he should be in power, and yet and he's in also power. that also signals to I... me that this is like... Uh, being a flouch because he did win an election, right? <laughs> Someone likes him. Why do I not know who anyone is? Am I dyslexic? Is this what <laughs> dyslexia feels like? No, it's just that this book is fucking impenetrable. <laughs> um. Uh. Okay. Maybe take notes on before characters. we end out the chapter. <laughs> maybe I should. Maybe I should start character specific notes pages. No, but if I did that. I would just fill them in wrong. That's been my problem this whole time. <laughs> uh, at the end of the chapter, we get an explanation of the title, which is that man is not reaching for Earth nor Adam, but, and then as the next chapter starts, perhaps the stars. I want to talk about this because I like this quote. Um, I don't necessarily like the suggestion that it's making about Earth and the Adam. So it, it talks us through how humans set out to do something, realize that we can't do it, and then redefine our terms until we've already succeeded. So Alexander set out to conquer the Earth, got some of it done, and then was like, conquered, finished. Uh, science set out to split the atom, split something, and then said, you remember that thing I split? That was an atom. But the further suggestion that we're going to do the same thing to the stars... I'm, I, I enjoy that. That's fun. Because we never will be able to conquer the stars. Space is too big. We'll never be able to have one thing conquering all of space as a physical property of the universe. That had genuinely never occurred to me before. I think it's almost the opposite. That, like, 
we ha- we can't do Earth, and we can't do the atom, but maybe we can do the stars. Well, it's like, because it's saying that no one person can conquer the Earth, but maybe humanity as a whole can conquer the stars. It's implying that that is a goal that, at least for now, seems possibly within our reach, and we have not yet stopped pursuing it, even if we've stopped pursuing it. Maybe not conquer the Earth, but like, reach the stars. Like, we can't conquer the Earth, we can't split the atom, but we can reach the stars. Well, then, we're just doing the stupid redefinition thing, because we're already surrounded, we're on a star currently. People, let's I not. have the opposite interpretation of this you to know, both I, of you. I don't know about you, I don't know about you, Liam, but as I record right now, I am not on a star, <laughs> and I think that is probably for the best. Really? Where's your chunk of the <laughs> Earth, and what is it orbiting? <laughs> I'm not on a star. I'm near a star. Well, guess what? In the cosmic sense. Fine. We're cosmically in the stars right now. <laughs> Surrounded by them on all sides. I, um, I think if you <laughs> ask someone if we ever reached the stars, especially in the context where, he, where like, well, like he's talking about people, most people would say no, right? We haven't gone like to Mars. We, I mean, we've sent a probe into the sun, right? Like we did, we did actually send something no. to the stars. If you want to be very people literal don't about think it, and that, I, that though. If you ask someone if we like The point is that they're not being literal. The point is that people are wrong and full of shit a little bit because we're going to say, "Oh, we'll conquer the stars." And then start realize we can't do it and be like, "Yes, I've conquered the stars." When what we meant is we sent a probe to the sun. I don't you know make an how... interesting point there, and, and I, I do think there's something to be said there with like, yeah, once humans have off-world colonization, we're going to be like, yeah, we conquered the stars, we did it. Like, there, there's this, the, actually, to the contrary, there's this great line in, I think it's either Aliens or uh, uh, Blade Runner, because those are basically set in the what? same setting. Um, <laughs> I really disagree with you, but fine. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. Where someone is just, like, saying, this is bullshit, man. Why do we only have, like, six off-world colonies? We should have more. Why are we not Why, why are we not getting off our ass? It's like, people always complain. Yeah, uh, I read this quote. Really, I'm surprised both of you disagree with me on this. I think the obvious point it's trying to make is that people don't know what they want. They think of a cool-sounding phrase and then just change their terms until they've already accomplished it. I think that's true of... Well, I think the only reason that... Sorry. I think the only reason that I didn't think of that was I was thinking of something else with this quote, which is that to say... To put conquer the Earth and split the atom in the same category is a little odd. Because to say we renamed the atom to be able to have successfully split something... Yeah, we changed the definition, but, like, atom in its original form, what it, like, used to mean was the smallest indivisible unit of thing. So, by definition, if you can split it, it's not the atom. By its original definition, it's a goal that's just impossible, whereas conquering the Earth is merely very hard and probably impractical. I agree. But, like, you could do it. Um, Whereas splitting the atom, if you keep the definition, you just can't do it. I think that's... I think conquering the stars falls into the atom category, wherein no organization that could conceivably exist can conceptually 
conquer the stars. I, okay. In that, for an organization to have conquered a thing, it needs to be able to communicate with itself. And the distances are simply too great. I think I disagree with distances, but well, also... Right, but, like, if you, if, you have it, if you have it as a collective... Like, yes, you couldn't have a centralized organization that conquers the stars, but you could have a, like, star conquest organization that, like, communicates with other nodes of itself. You just couldn't have it reporting back to a central authority and receiving instruction from a central authority, but you could have it be one cooperative thing that, co- that cooperates with nearby I think members. We're missing, I think the word conquer is leading us astray. Like, if human humanity had colonies, there were people in multiple stars that communicated, even if they were part of one organization, I think we have reached the stars. Or close to reaching the stars in some Sure, but we haven't. Sense. We haven't done that. I agree. We can reach the stars. I disagree. We can conquer the stars. I don't know what word you'd like me to use. We cannot... Well, to be fair, Liam, the text doesn't actually say conquer the stars. Like, it, you, you said the quote. The quote is, we have abandoned the atom, we have abandoned the earth, but, and then perhaps the stars. What we want to do to the stars is unclear. It is implied maybe conquer, but maybe we're supposed to split the stars. <laughs> that could also be implied. But, you know, it could indeed also be reach the stars. Yeah, I think... But we're already in the stars. Reach the stars <laughs> in is a, a stupid star. goal. We're surrounded <laughs> by stars. Star. Any way you care to look, there are stars in that direction. We're as in the yeah, stars as someone in the middle of the Pacific of is in the water, right? <laughs> oh, you've been... reached the star. Good for you. If it's not conquering the stars, you're not doing anything. <laughs> right, but if it's an... Like, you could say... This is the difference between, like, saying that an empire spans the seas because it has like control over things on every ocean like britain did and which would be the real version of quote-unquote conquering the stars versus you're saying like yeah if you define it that broadly then you're saying then you have spanned the seas if you can see the ocean no we have seen we are we have reached one star maybe we have not reached the stars because they, we can see them yeah I, I i agree with that like the i think that's the point I'm making. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. So, uh, yes, people being weird about definitions. Like, I'm with you. The the thing that we could fall into this is if we... I don't think we can do it. Okay. I think I disagree. Well, I think, like, only if you define your terms weirdly. Like, it is unlikely (laughs) that we're... Even if we could, we wouldn't want to go to every star. Most stars don't have anything good around them. The whole quote is about defining terms weirdly for your own benefit. <laughs> yes, I know, but like, mean we have to e- even at, as a goal, it's not a good goal. Like, wh- yes, we might want to do it because it sounds poetic to have humanity conquering the stars, but that's not a practical goal because there's no reason you would want to do so. You would want to conquer the Earth because, like, there are uh, practical reasons why having the earth in your control is good. There are practical the reasons why splitting the atom is useful. Is a practical goal. <laughs> yeah, but okay. Why, so I think like the thrill of victory is not worth sending probes everywhere. Those are expensive. Yes, we have to. Be I disagree. The... We are not done as a species until we have made the stars kneel before us, <laughs> and anything less is quitting. <laughs> I think. Um, I have two thoughts. Uh... Yes, this this quote is about 
defining things in ways that benefit people who are doing the things. That doesn't mean you have to antagonistically define terms, though, right? <laughs> uh, in addition, uh, victory over the sun is like a phrase that's always been in my head. I don't know why. And there's like a play called The Victory Over the Sun. I, I don't know if it's good. It's, it's like uh, an avant-garde is it exactly the plot of the movie Sunshine? No, I don't know if it has a plot. Damn. Uh, do you want to do Victory Over the Sun as your philosophy of the week and then come back and tell us about <laughs> the philosophy of Victory Over the Sun? I would need more than a week to understand Victory I've watched a little bit of it. Um, Isn't it a play? Is it like the fountain, but in no, play it's form? not the fountain. The fountain. How long is it? Uh, let me check. I think it's like three hours long. It's in Russian. I know very oh, now I understand the problem. <laughs> Russian translations are the worst translations. Really? I had some pretty good Dostoevsky translations. Dostoevsky is hard, man. I, I've tried to read Dostoevsky and it is difficult to get through. My grandfather, when I was in high school, gave me a book called The Master and Margarita. And I read it. I know that one. I read it cover to cover. And I put it down at the end. And I don't know anything that happened in that book. I could describe to you two scenes. One of which is um, Pontius Pilate doing something right at the start. And at some point, a witch, I think, flies naked on a broom over Moscow. Those are the only two takeaways I had from this entire 400-page novel. And that's the problem with Russian translations. I could probably tell you more about